This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. person today that I, I tried to dig into her and I didn't have a, a lot of luck. Uh, this is a Seattle, Washington case. That it goes into NamUs on March 4th of 2019. Now, this is an African-American female. She's 5'5", five five, 160 pounds. Her missing person's number in NamUs is 55792. She's out of Seattle, Washington, so that's going to be King County at Hazard. She has black hair and brown eyes. She would have been 18 years old when she goes missing. There are some pictures of her available. She has a 2006 Seattle Police Department case file that I'm not allowed to access because it's Washington State. Um, Her name is Portia Devin Price. Now... I went over and I pulled the Charlie Project listing on her as well. But again, that that is pretty much all the information that's offered up about her. I, I found a blurb basically saying she was last seen with an unknown person uh, and she's had no contact with her family after Christmas of 2005. Did you find anything on her? I did. Um, I found, uh, so this is pretty uh, deep in there, and I'm not going to give, actually, I can't give it. I don't know the person. Um, They just have a screen name. However, her younger sister, who indicates she was 12 at the time, and her sister Portia was 18, and this is in 2005, right? Uh, She comes on to uh, one of the you know, crime discussion websites. And um, she is interested. And she says she found the website because she was searching for her sister's case. Right. Okay. Now I don't have names up right there, but it just, there's just like no additional circumstances there. Uh, it just says family less had contact with price on 12, 25, 2005, when she left to meet an unknown person has had no contact with anyone since that time. Okay. And so um, basically the sister is saying that um, they were contacted sometime during the pandemic. They finally swabbed the sister and the mom. 
Okay. Uh, so there could be a way for Portia to be ruled out. Uh, and I, I don't know if they had a particular case or what, but um, basically she says like her, her 12 year old self remembers that um, in 2005, when they reported her missing, they were told that because Portia was 18, there wasn't much that could be done. Um, and their brother had just told the family that he was expecting um, his first baby right around Thanksgiving or, or Christmas, like during the holiday season. And so the 12-year-old sister, she believes it's crazy to think that Portia would have just left. So it's kind of steering away from her being like a runaway because the family was close knit and they were really excited for uh, this new baby. Right. So anyway, but of course this is an adult that was 12 at the time, an adult now that was 12 at the time and her 18 year old sister has gone missing. She, uh, the sister indicates that Portia did have some, uh, some issues that she, you know, could have been running away from that might've been interpreted that she was running away from. However, her sister does not believe that she willingly left on her own accord and didn't want to be found by the family. Um, and the sister's concerned with, you know, pretty much all the terrible young, uh, young, the terrible situations young women can get themselves involved in like trafficking and, you know, somebody just ultimately doing whatever and then killing them. Right. Um, And so that's, you know, that's, um, that's really all I found. And it really took a lot for me to find that, but, um, there's little tidbits of information are always interesting to me. And, you know, I don't necessarily rely on them. It just helps give a little more insight, right? Um, it's entirely, I, I feel so bad for, uh, the situation to be like Googling your sister's missing persons case and, you know come upon, you know, strangers discussing it. It's just, it's such a weird concept to me, but um, I'm one of those strangers discussing it, right? And um, I felt like it was worth putting out there, even though there's not a whole lot of information. The family did last see her at Christmas time in 05. So that's 18 years ago. Is that right? Yeah, it's 18. She, she would be 36 years old if she were alive today. Okay, so she would be 36. And, and I got what I felt like was some pretty good confirmation that, um, it would be odd. Like she had a family that were together at the holiday time and, uh, the 12 year old sister saw absolutely no reason why, you know, 18 years later, she'd be wondering what happened to her sister after that time. Right. Yeah. So I thought that was interesting and I feel like it's worth it. And I, I wish that, um, you know, they could figure out what happened to Portia. Yeah, I wish that there were more information to go off of. Uh, th- that's all I have as well. I don't have anything else on her. I I looked. You you came up with more than I did, um, and I know that you dig into these sometimes. And I I thought I might come up with something a little more in terms of mentioning her. Um, I wanted to include her for a number of reasons. In the Northwest, young women are are traditionally kind of overlooked for you know, a, a, a lot of reasons, but it, it typically boils down to kind of some poor record keeping in my opinion. Now with this particular case, she's also African-American 
And just by virtue of, of that, some things have changed where young African-American and other women of color are now being looked for. But I don't know that, that that's changed much. And sometimes people just skip over these cases and they say, oh, there's not much to say. But like you said, there's a sister looking for her. And, yeah. um, and I wanted to at least mention her here today and, and sort of think positive thoughts about her case. And, and if there's any way she can be home for the holidays, then I hope she makes it home for the holidays. Um, she's, she's mentioned a few places online. Charlie Project has her. NamUs has her. Um, International Missing has a page on her. Sadly, there is just not that, uh, that much information for me to bring in on this one. She's on Washington State Missing Persons information page as well. That's it. That's all I got on her. I did bring a a slightly more well-known exoneration to the table. I think some people will know this case. Uh, At the time that it all happened, it was pretty well covered as far as the exoneration part of it. Uh, We're going to jump down to Hillsborough County, Florida. Um, and this is, it's a murder case. Now the crime occurs in 1973. The uh, demographic information here, this is a, at the time of the crime is a 24 year old black male. He's sentenced to death. Uh, he's convicted. So the crime occurs in 1973. That's when he's 24. He's convicted in 1974. He's exonerated in 1987 the contributing factors to his exoneration are not DNA, but they are uh, false or misleading forensic evidence, uh, perjury or false accusation, official misconduct and inadequate legal defense. Before I get into this, had you ever heard of this case? Do you remember this? No, I had not. This is a doozy. And it was a huge deal when it happened. And it sort of ties into what I was saying earlier. Uh, what I've said all, not just in, I don't think I said it in this episode, but previous episodes, where, you know, depending on who you are and what kind of defense you can afford, and race can play uh, into a lot of situations. And it certainly did not help in this particular situation. I'll just start off with, with the crime itself. Uh, National Registry of Exonerations has this one, and it was written up by Catherine Grindon and uh, Daryl Drubinsky for them. And then I have a couple of different articles out of uh, Tampa Bay that I'll use as I go along, uh, including articles from 2001 and 2005. Uh, Mary Jo uh, Maloney wrote a couple of these, or Malone, um, M-E-L-O-N-E. And uh, I'll jump into it. On July 7th of 1973, the nude body of Erlene Treva Barksdale, 34, the wife of a prominent attorney, was found in the back office of her children's clothing store, Just Kids Shop, located in North Tampa, Florida. She had been raped, she had been shot in the head, and about $100 was missing from the store. The bullet found below her left ear was later determined to be a bullet from a 38 special revolver. There were no fingerprints found and tests of body fluids to determine who had raped Barksdale were inconclusive, but at the time suggested two separate assailants. On the same day, 
Joseph Green Brown, who is known by his Swahili name, Shabaka Wakalimi, and Robert Floyd committed a different robbery at a nearby Holiday Inn. After the robbery, Joseph Brown turned himself in and he implicated Robert Floyd to the police. Joseph Brown was originally from Charleston, South Carolina, and he had relocated to Florida from Charleston where his mother lived only a few months before this arrest. Some friends of his had told him that it might be good to move to Florida to find a job and maybe to find some people his age to hang out with. So he moved down to Orlando and that didn't work out so well for him. He felt out of place there. And after that, he moved on to Tampa. He was looking for more opportunities and, a, and kind of a bigger opportunity to make a name for himself. And he felt like Tampa was the place to do that. But he later said that he regretted that move because it had put him in contact with Robert Floyd. Robert Floyd introduced him to people that, quote, I didn't have any business being with. And the next thing I know, I'm in jail charged with murder, end quote. Brown was arrested after he turned himself into the police related to the Holiday Inn robbery. The similarities between that robbery, that robbery and the Barksdale murder case were pretty strong. These similarities combined with statements made by Robert Floyd, who was in police custody in connection with yet another robbery, and he was angry at Brown for snitching on him in the Holiday Inn crime the police end up charging Brown with murder. On July 3rd, 1974, so a year later, after a five-day trial before an all-white jury, Robert uh, Joseph Brown, a, 20, a 23-year-old black man, so I'm going to tell you right now, there are multiple uh, ages for him. He is somewhere between 22 and 25 years old, but depending on the source you read, some of them say he's convicted when he's 23, some of them say he's 23 at the time of the crime. The National Registry for Exoneration says he's 24 at the time of the crime. On July 3rd, 1974, after a five-day trial before an all-white jury, Joseph Brown was convicted of first-degree murder, rape, and robbery. The prosecutor, Robert Bonanno, misled the jury by telling them that Brown's 38 caliber handgun was the same weapon that was used to kill Erlene Barksdale. FBI ballistic tests, however, had already eliminated that possibility. Further, the state provided Brown with an inexperienced and underpaid defense counsel in Michael J. Shea. The prosecution's case rested on the testimony of Robert Floyd, who fabricated Brown's involvement in the murder case as revenge for turning him in on the Holiday Inn robbery. That doesn't sound fair to me, by the way. But you, like, this guy felt guilty about the robbery, and he just turns himself in and mentions that his friend was the one behind, you know, pushing him towards it. And so, like, you're – like, it's not good snitch. I get that. But the response being, I'm going to get this guy charged with murder is terrible. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you're right. It definitely is. Don't want to be. It's definitely not no. like a tit for tat, right? No. The entire case hinges on Robert Floyd's testimony that Brown had admitted killing and raping uh, Mrs. Barksdale. In exchange for this testimony, 
Floyd receives a generous plea agreement from the prosecution, which gives him immunity from charges in connection with the Barksdale murder. At the trial, Robert Floyd told the jury he had made no such arrangement with the prosecution, and the prosecutor included Floyd's denial in his closing arguments. Although he had no prior problems with the law, Brown received the death sentence based on his murder conviction. And then he got two consecutive life sentences on the robbery charge and a rape charge. In March of 1975, eight months after the trial, while still in prison on an unrelated robbery charge, Robert Floyd takes back his testimony against Joseph Brown. He submits an affidavit to Brown's attorney, explicitly stating his testimony about the crime and the denial of a plea agreement were entirely false. The prosecutor is enraged by this move. He threatens Floyd with a perjury prosecution. Then Robert Floyd recants his recantation, or at least most of the statements in the affidavit. However, Robert Floyd could not recant his statement about receiving a favorable plea agreement because by this point in time, he had received a favorable plea agreement. It took 11 years after this for Joseph Brown to be awarded a new trial. In October of 1983, he came within 15 hours of being executed, but a stay was ordered by the federal court that saved his life. Finally, October 17th of 1986, the 11th Circuit Federal Court of Appeals reverse Brown's conviction, stating that the state knowingly allowed the introduction of false testimony at trial. They failed to make the falsity known, and they allowed the prosecution to exploit the testimony and the closing arguments to the jury, violating the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. The court ordered a new trial, but the prosecution concluded they lacked evidence to prove the original murder charge and dropped all the charges against Brown. Brown was finally released on March 5th of 1987. Brown's attorney asked a comment on the release, told the press, if people would just stop and think about what happened here, we almost executed an innocent man. Now, Joseph Brown was released without compensation. And he told reporters he planned to work with death penalty opponents to speak out against uh, prosecutorial misconduct. And the years that followed, he did just that. He spoke to schools, churches, and other groups and publications about his experiences and his opposition to the death penalty. He married. He spent much of his time with his wife's children and grandchildren. He reported that he continually struggled to obtain employment because his capital conviction had not been expunged from his record. Okay, so that's where we're going to start with this one because I think that's a good place to go with it. What do you think of this part of Joseph Brown's life. I think that it makes for a very dramatic story. It does. Yeah. Because he's convicted, he's sentenced to death. Uh, there's drama and there's quite a bit of time like leading right up to like, they're going to put him to death. Right. Yes. Um, and then he, not only is he not put to death, like his convictions are returned. Right. It's he. It's overturned. He's released. Right, and so that's very dramatic. Yeah, if you go back and um, and look at some of these cases, I pulled a 2001 article, and that's the first one where I was talking about Mary Melanie. 
here's what she she has to say. And I, I bring this up. It's from Tampa Bay. I think it's still online where you can get it. I have the archive version here, but I think you can still uh, go over there and see it. At, uh, I think it's Tampa Bay Times. It, the title of it is The Story with an Ending We'll Never Know. From his South Tampa home, lawyer Mike Shea gets on the phone and talks to radio hosts in Canada and Iowa to promote his book. Talking to me, though, he complains. Hardly anyone in Tampa Bay has heard about, quote, the penalty, which is Shea's book about a murder and the man who didn't commit it, but nevertheless was nearly executed. So let this column serve as notice to the Bay Area that Shea has written his book. You can find it online at iUniverse.com. It isn't a great novel. The story is told almost entirely in dialogue, not action. The characters have no meat on their bones, and the result reads like a beginner's first draft. Still, the story of the penalty matters. The true story behind it is a nasty piece of Tampa history about what happens when murder, influence, and racism meet. Almost 28 years ago, in July 1973, 35-year-old Arlene Barksdale was found dead in the children's clothing shop she ran on Bush Boulevard. She had been shot in the head. Shea represented the man who was nearly executed for murder, although there was no physical evidence against him. Joseph Green Brown's main offense was that he was black and poor. Arlene Barksdale was white and the girlfriend of Fred Barksdale, an attorney who knew his way around Tampa's courthouse the way most people know their way around their block. Even while Fred Barksdale was married to another woman, Erlene had taken his last name and borne him two daughters. I'm just going to let that sit for a second. And then I'm going to repeat it. Even while Fred Barksdale was married to another woman, Erlene had taken his last name and borne him two daughters. Okay. The only testimony that implicated Joseph Green Brown came from his supposed accomplice, Ronald, and here his name is Ronald Floyd, um, although I think in court records he's Robert Floyd, but I don't know that for sure. Because um, So Floyd is what we're going to call him. So later Floyd said he had been pressured by authorities to make up this story, but that wasn't what finally got Brown's conviction overturned in 1986. A federal appeals court concluded that the prosecutor knew Floyd was lying when he testified during the trial that he had not been offered probation in return for his testimony. In Shea's book, the real story is about his dressed up and disguised as a stripper. The name Barksdale has been changed to Bloomingdale. While Fred is still Fred, Erlene is Elaine, Joseph Green Brown is Joseph Brown Green. The name of the man who testified against him is not Floyd, but Fowler. Shea said he wrote the story as fiction because he had no choice. He had no way to prove his suspicions the way that he would have if it were nonfiction. All he could say by writing the book was there appears to be a lot of unanswered questions about Mr. Barksdale's involvement. He says, yet Fred Barksdale was barely investigated. Shea now believes that Barksdale was angry at Earlene. She was seeing somebody else and she knew that Barksdale was breaking the law. Barksdale later went to prison for income tax evasion for failing to pay the IRS for what he made getting traffic tickets fixed. Years after that, when he was freed, Barksdale told me in a voice just the side of a snarl that he didn't kill Erlene. Shea believed that DNA testing, which didn't exist when Erlene Barksdale was killed, could be used now. She had been sexually assaulted, and police took semen samples from her body, clothing, and a piece of carpet. 
That's the very sort of thing which DNA testing might be used for, Shay figured. Then prosecutors could seek a blood sample from people, including Barksdale. It could be done, Shay said. He didn't know the rest of the story when he wrote this novel. I learned it Wednesday. I asked about the evidence. Trial evidence is maintained by the Office of the Clerk of Courts. I reached Audrey Colston, the director of evidence for the clerk. She said all the evidence from early in Barksdale's killing was sent to the sheriff's office for destruction in March of 1988. Okay. Lot to unpack there, don't you think? Who killed Earlene Barksdale, in your opinion? Well, I don't know. I don't know. I don't have enough information uh, to go off of. And in fact, I was trying to figure out, like, I I, I do see, like, pretty um, substantial discrepancies. But I'm curious with regard to why, like, his convictions are returned, but he, you know, he doesn't appear to have been exonerated completely. As far as, like, because he's, it's stated, like, um, that he has trouble because it's on his record, right? Yes. All right. And it seemed to me like that could have been taken care of. And that made me wonder, like, what was up with that? Who do you think killed Erlene Barksdale? I still don't know. (laughs) So, (laughs) and I ask all this because I've got a, I've got like a long story here that I could run through with you. If you've ever, do you ever read Creative Loafing? I'm sorry, what? Have you ever read Creative Loafing? CL, Creative Loafing, the magazine? I have not. Okay. So they have the most fascinating version of this story. Now, there's there's more to some of this that I'm kind of holding back as we go through this story. But if you look at the creative loafing side of this, it is um, it's, it's pretty awesome. Uh, it would have come out around the same time as that article I was just reading from. Okay. This is dramatic from the perspective that this guy almost died. And like it's it doesn't get any less murky, but some weird stuff happens at the end of all of this that like they didn't even know when the creative loafing and that other article came out. So Francis Gilpin writes this multi-page article in creative loafing Tampa Bay in November of 2001. And it starts off, it kind of reads exactly like what we were just reading over there, but then it goes little haywire. So we already know the basics of this. we got the state's attorney unable to defend the fact that the prosecutor who prosecuted Brown told lies in the closing argument. That's really what keeps Joseph Brown off of death row. And it, or that's what gets him off of death row. But like you said, you know, what is the ultimate outcome of this? Well, the evidence wanders over to the sheriff's office. And if about halfway through the creative loafing article, they pick up with this. After Brown was released in 1987, the Barksdale murder reverted to being an unsolved crime. A year later, most of the evidence introduced at Brown's trial was turned over to the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office by the Clerk of Courts Office. The sheriff's officials cannot account for its whereabouts. 
Among the trial evidence that was listed in the court records is carpet from the murder scene that Shea said contained specific semen samples. Those samples now could be subjected to DNA testing unavailable to law enforcement in the 1970s. Now, this is being written in 2001. In 2023, surely they could do more testing. So Yes, they would be able to identify it if they had it. Yeah. Yeah. Matt Evans is early in Barksdale's son. He was just out of high school when his mother gets killed. He gets together with Brown's lawyer. So uh Shay. And the two of them ask, where is this evidence? When they ask about it. They're told by Hillsborough State Attorney that they can't reopen the case without the physical evidence, and they want to know where it is. Now, talking about the victim for just a second, early in Barksdale, as far as Barksdale's like recounting their relationship, he says they were living together as husband and wife, and he said he wouldn't go into the exact legal status they had as a couple. He said it was personal. He said he wasn't going to get into it. Even though she had his last name, obviously she was going by Barksdale. And the two of them had met 12 years earlier before her murder. And the way they met was Matt Evans' dad was getting divorced from early in Barksdale. Fred Barksdale has two families this whole time. He has a family with Susan Barksdale, and they live over in Tampa's Sunset Park. But then he has the family with Erlene Barksdale, and they live in a different area called Temple Terrace. The way Matt Evans describes all of this, he says that everything was, like, great. He said we had a fully stocked household and everything you could imagine. We had vacations. There was a lake house. He says we didn't even know that Susan and the other kids existed. All of any of Erlene's kids knew was that the main breadwinner was away from home a lot. And the way Evans describes it is he said, Fred Barksdale was an important attorney. And when you are doing something, it's the norm to be busy. And that made them think that like, he's important, he's busy. And like, it just made them like him more. So aside from having this whole other family in South Tampa, Barksdale had been defending clients who were up on DUI charges, DWI charges. He and his partner, Abel Rigaud, were famous in Tampa legal circles because they had an astonishing record of success with DWI cases ahead of certain judges. Fred and Susan get divorced in Polk County four days before Joseph Brown's trial starts. Now, the investigation into Barksdale's death involves a lot of people. Dick Rivet is a Tampa police detective in 1973, and he tells Creative Loafing in 2001 that he was one of the homicide investigators assigned on the night of July 7th to find out who killed Erlene Barksdale. Coincidentally, Dick Rivet and his wife had been in the Just Kids shop earlier the same day. So a few hours before she gets raped, robbed, and shot, Erlene Barksdale 
had sold the rivets a little dress for their newborn. When Rivet goes into the shop, you know, prior in the day when his wife's there, he notices that she's wearing a huge diamond ring on her finger. That night when she gets robbed, that ring is still on her finger at what had become the scene of not only a murder, but also a supposed robbery. So she's got an engagement ring on and it's not taken is his point there. Fred Barksdale said that he had returned from St. Pete Beach after calling and failing to get an answer at the Just Kids shop. He said he was expecting Erlene to come and join him and their two preschool-aged daughters at a beach motel after she closed up. Once he gets back to Tampa, he drives over to the shop and he finds her dead. According to an FBI laboratory report, she was most likely shot with this 38 caliber Smith & Wesson special that we talked about. Do you know anything about the Smith & Wesson special revolver? Not really. Okay. It's a gun. So at the point in time that we're talking about all this, it would have, I don't want to say, I don't want to say it would have been a rare weapon, but it was a preferred weapon of a specific type of person, a cop. Okay. All right. So much of that day, Matt Evans was home. And when Fred Barksdale called their house, Matt Evans get, gets asked to go check on Erlene at the shop. Matt blows him off. And he tells him, if mom needed something from me, she would call me. So... When Rivet goes to talk to Fred Barksdale, he notices that Fred Barksdale, who he hasn't interacted with, knows his full name. And there are three hours on the day of the murder that Barksdale did not satisfactorily account for, according to Rivet. They bring him in for questioning at police headquarters. The attorney admits to the investigators that nobody can vouch for him. He has no alibi. Fred Barksdale says this didn't happen and that he didn't talk to Dick Rivet about that. So the police go out and they start conducting interviews and they hear about fights that have been going on between Barksdale and Erlene. At the end of the shift, Rivet passes along this information about th there were some issues between Erlene and Fred and this three-hour gap in time. William Biebler, who ends up being the lead investigator on this case, he reacts like, what are you talking about? And the quote from Rivet in the Creative Loathing article is, he said he'd known Fred Barksdale all of his life. And he's remembering a conversation with Biebler. He says, oh, my God, Fred wouldn't do this kind of shit. Are you nuts? So Fred Barksdale in 2001 is 80 years old. And he says that he was considered a prime suspect for about five days after this murder. According to Fred's account in 2001, he says he passed the lie detector test and police started looking at other people. But William Biebler, he focuses in on Joseph Brown pretty early on. We already know Brown's story. What he brings up that like, made him pop as a suspect was that when Brown came in and admitted to this robbery at the motel, 
He admitted robbing and sexually abusing a female motel guest on July 7th. That's according to Beebler. That was enough for Beebler to latch onto him and not let go. The trouble was that Brown denied knowing anything about Erlene's demise and pretty much readily admitted to anything else he'd done. A few months after the murder, Dick Rivett was at the county jail, which is on Morgan Street, and he was there to question an inmate. He ends up eavesdropping on a a police interrogation that catches his attention because whoever is conducting the investigation is using obscenities and racially charged epithets. He's slurring at whoever the person he's questioning is. Now, as he waited to go out of the Sally Port in the lockup area, Rivet says that he sees Biebler, William Biebler, and a black inmate emerge. When Rivet asks him what's going on, he says that Biebler replied, that is, a, there's a lot of obscenity in what he said, so I'm not going to repeat all of it because it's actually really bad. He indicates that this terrible person that he's been screaming these terrible things at is the bastard that killed Barksdale's wife. So Brown actually complains about this session with police. And Mike Shea says that he had to go and warn Biebler to stay away because he wasn't allowed to be there. Now, Biebler didn't want to be a part of anything related to Brown after Brown's exoneration. And he doesn't participate in this interview. And they make it really clear in multiple articles that that Biebler refused to be a part of it. Brown and two alleged accomplices from the motel robbery, they provided blood and pubic hair samples. None of those are linked back to early in Barksdale's murder. Now, the other accomplice is a guy named Raymond Vincent. We talked about Ronald Floyd, who is sometimes called Robert Floyd, but Raymond Vincent is the other guy. Now, so the trial comes along in November of 1973, and when Bob Bonanno is picking his jury, this is in the this is the trial for the robbery that Brown is admitted to. Okay, he yes. uh, so this is a Holiday Inn, and the robbery victim can't positively identify Floyd or Vincent, the accomplices. Mike Shea, he takes a, a, a chambers meeting with the DA and, and the judge, and he tells the judge he is his client's willing to admit to his role in the Holiday Inn heist, but he won't snitch on the others. The prosecutor has no case against either of them. But... When Brown goes to make his guilty plea, the judge says he's going to give him the maximum sentence. And when he does that, it changes Brown's mind about testifying. So the state exploits Vincent and Floyd being mad at being snitched on and takes that like to the next level in terms of, of getting Brown kind of in a corner. Floyd tells police that he and another man, whom the state never produced, went with Brown to the Just Kids shop and that Brown raped and shot Earlene inside the shop 
while Floyd was waiting innocently outside. The testimony of the two guys from the Holiday Inn trial, Floyd and Vincent, is the only evidence that the state could find that connects Brown to the Barksdale murder. And then we go through everything related to the appellate part. But you were asking, like, like, like how did all that work? Well, I don't think even with the exoneration, they treated this like it was one of those, quote, technicalities. Like he gets off because the prosecutor behaved badly. They don't treat it like he truly didn't do it. Does that make sense? And I just don't understand why. Well, it, it's never fully explained, but in this article, we're going to get to like some parts of it. In 1977, three years after Brown is sentenced to death, the Tampa Tribune goes after Fred Barksdale and his partner, Abe Rigaud. Based on months of research in traffic court, where they like literally are going in and, and like watching it all happen, they reported that Barksdale and Rigaud had gotten hundreds of DWI charges reduced or dropped altogether for clients without the cases ever appearing on the docket of Judge Bob Johnson. In case files where Bob Johnson's signature should have appeared, Tribune reporters saw only the notation BMJ-JH. So the newspaper reported that the initials referred to Johnson and his clerk, Julianne Holt, who was someone who worked part-time for Fred Barksdale. Now, at the time of this article, Julianne Holt was the Hillsborough public defender, like the county public defender. This coming out in the Tampa Tribune, it gets the feds really interest, interested in Barksdale. Barksdale's a pretty well-known Democrat in Hillsborough County. And according to Fred Barksdale, he and his friends were targeted by the basically the Republican administration that was running the DOJ in the 70s and 80s. Barksdale says that two FBI agents spent a couple of years trying to build a racketeering case against him and all of his law partners, and they didn't have any evidence. So they went out there. They wanted to know how much my, my money my clients had paid and whether or not Barksdale was involved in what was known as fixing cases. Through the Freedom of Information Act, Barksdale goes and gets records showing that the FBI had been declined on getting his case to a prosecutor. So the FBI bows out and they stop looking at Barksdale and his partners. And suddenly the IRS pops up. And in 1979, they have an indictment against them. They secure this indictment and Barksdale is found guilty of failing to report about $70,000 from his DWI cases and of telling clients to destroy any records of their payments to him before the IRS agents could seize the documents. This was not the first time he had been in trouble. Uh, according to like some of the different records they put together for us here in 1958, the Florida bar publicly reprimanded Barksdale in the aftermath of a grand jury probe. Barksdale was found to have improperly attempted to get a witness in a DWI case to change his testimony. So he gets put on supervised probation with the bar. 71 comes along and a federal judge suspended a one-year pr uh, prison sentence and imposed three years of court supervised probation after Barksdale pleads no contest to not filing 1965 
income tax returns. The bar doesn't do anything about that. So by 1982, all of these things that like Barksdale's been dodging kind of go away. He ends up having to serve 18 months of a six-year federal prison sentence. And he loses his law license. And while Barksdale's incarcerated, Julianne Holt, who was the clerk of courts, she takes his daughter's head. What's interesting about this is Barksdale's in prison while Brown is still on death row. So Mike Shea starts looking for new evidence and he decides to try to talk to Jerry Fox. Now, Jerry Fox was a business partner and a close friend of Erlene Barksdale, but he had ended a seven and a half year extramural affair with Abrigo in the mid 1970s. When Shea calls Fox up to talk to her, she agrees that she's going to talk to him. Keep in mind, these are all like, married lawyers down here. Rigaud and Barksdale had established Jerry Fox and Earlene Barksdale as co-owners of the Just Kids shop. And while Abe seemed to limit his extramarital affairs to one, Fred Barksdale had more than just a wife and a mistress that he was supporting. A few months before the murder, according to Jerry Fox, Fred Barksdale had joined her and Abrigo in Las Vegas, and Julianne Holt was with him. Abrigo was a former Tampa police officer who went to law school, and he still had buddies at headquarters when Erlene Barksdale was, was killed. This is all according to the defense's story, by the way, and this is all while Brown is on death row. When Shay was questioning Abe's ex-girlfriend, Richard Blumenthal wins a stay of execution. Richard Blumenthal is Brown's appellate lawyer. The federal appeals court in Atlanta eventually orders a new trial due to the problems with the state and how they had treated the case. Shay starts to think that Rigaud and Biebler were friends. According to Barksdale, that's not true. We've already gone through how Brown gets exonerated. When he gets set free, it's basically him being released. And Barksdale doesn't like how he's released. In his opinion, this is a quote from him, the 11th Circuit didn't absolve Brown of the murder. This is his words. I am led dead certain that he is the son of a bitch. I still feel he is the one who did it. He notes Brown's guilty plea in the motel robbery and sarcastically called him a, quote, really nice guy. Barksdale accused what he called the James Gang, and that ties back to local political figures that I haven't dragged into this, the the leader of which is a guy named Bill James, of releasing Brown just to make Barksdale mad. After Shea publishes his book, multiple people reach out and try and talk to Fred Barksdale about the penalty. Now, he said he had that he had yet to read it. So the local paper, The Planet, they sent a copy of it to Fred Barksdale's home. A week or two later, Barksdale had formed a definite impression about the book, and he sits for a three-hour interview. I think it's on October 31st, 2001. Barksdale said it was the first time that he had talked about Erlene slaying at length with any reporter. 
And he had some stuff to say about Mike Shea's book. He said the book was completely inaccurate. Even the publisher himself said it's a fictional book. I would say 90% of it's fiction, hearsay, testimony that's never been under oath. Like Mike Shea and Matt Evans, Barksdale said he wants Erlene's killer brought to justice. Unlike uh, Shea and Evans, Barksdale said it's preposterous to think that he might have been mixed up in the murder. He said, there's no question in my mind that the N-word, he uses the N-word in an interview that's going to law school. You can put that word down there, underline it as N-word there. That's what I consider him. I'm interested in putting that fellow back in state prison for murder. That's in his interview with The Planet, by the way. Barksdale questions Shay's honesty and Brown's defense lawyer's motivation for writing this book. He offers these observations. Barksdale in 2001 said that he keeps in touch with Erling's kids, except, quote, that little asshole Matt. On the day of the murder, Matt Evans was too busy partying with high school girls to see if his mother was all right, according to Barksdale. He calls Dick Rivet a, quote, piece of shit. He said the now ex-police, ex-Tampa police detective is still angry because Julianne Holt wouldn't hire Rivet as an investigator after she was elected public defender in 1992. Rivet acknowledged talking with Holt's office about a job, but Rivet said he decided against finishing the application process. He denied that Barksdale influenced that decision. Rivet said he harbored suspicions about Erlene's murder long before 1992. Barksdale accused Jerry Fox of failing to pay Erlene's estate for the half interest in the Just Kids shop she assumed just after the murder. And Jerry Fox says she wasn't asked for compensation by Fred Barksdale or Erlene's family. Fox said that Fred Barksdale and Abrigo owned the property where the shop was located, and the shop was unprofitable at the time of Erlene's death. Barksdale doesn't seem as interested in physical evidence as he is in seeing Joseph Brown hooked up to a polygraph. Like Barksdale said, he was. So lie detector results, just to point it out here, it's pointed out in the article, they're generally inadmissible in court. Now, Shay, Joseph Brown's attorney, he wouldn't let him be uh, polygraphed, according to Barksdale. And he said, you can rest assured that his alleged incompetent lawyer will tell him not to take sodium pentanol or a lie detector test. Anyways, over the years, this case has gotten a lot of attention beyond the creative uh, loafing article that I'm kind of pulling from here. The book doesn't get as much attention. They talk about a Los Angeles time doing a big front page Sunday profile shortly after his release. Now, Dick Rivett's a private investigator at the time of this interview. He talks about chatting with Fred Barksdale at the police station. He says, when I, hand, when I interviewed him, I handled myself like a gentleman. I didn't accuse him of anything, but I did ask him, did you murder your wife? And he very calmly told me no. Rivett said that Barksdale also denied any problems in his relationship with Erlene and said he didn't own a gun. Matt Evans said that Fred Barksdale owned two handguns in 1973. Jerry Fox told... Brown's attorney, Shay, that Erlene had confided to her shortly before the murder that the victim's relationship with Fred Barksdale was strained. Around the time of the 1980 tax trial, a federal agent later told Shay Barksdale had been stopped with a Smith & Wesson 38 special. Shay said that federal agents confiscated the gun and tracked the weapon back to a 1971 purchase by Barksdale at a Tampa hardware store. Barksdale said the gun he surrendered to the feds belonged to Julianne Holt. The Hillsborough public defender says she knows nothing about the murder and declined to be interviewed by anyone in this case.
According to Shea, federal agents disposed of the gun uh, years after they seized it from Barkdale. Uh, it was destroyed. Even though he's disappointed with this case, Barksdale praises Bill Beebler as a hardworking, diligent, bulldog type of detective. Dennis Alvarez seconded that. Um, he said, as a prosecutor, I thought the cases that Beebler brought me were well put together. Beebler's no longer a cop. He he lives in a place that Fred Barksdale used to co-own. Fred Barksdale says he has no idea how Beebler came to own this condo. He looks... Uh, he says, uh, these guys have looked through all the records and they say there's nothing to indicate how Beebler ends up acquiring this unit. Beebler responded in, in to written questions from the planet and he stated in an October 20th, 2001 letter, he was tired of talking about this murder case and all Mike Shea wants to do is sell his book. And then he declined to answer specific questions about the police professionalism or his condo. And he signed the letter, thanks, but no thanks, all capital letters, uh, Bill Beebler. Everybody sat down and discussed the unsolved murder of Erling uh, Barksdale in September of 2001. And that was with uh, Hillsborough State Attorney Mark Ober at the time. The FBI had returned the homicide evidence to local law enforcement. The county medical examiner said his office no longer had anything related to this case. Uh, there was a police sergeant in Jim Simonson, and he told Ober in a memorandum that Simonson advised that their records revealed that all the evidence was checked out by Detective Beebler in 1973 to be used in court, and it was never returned. According to the court clerk at this time, there were uh, the only trial exhibits left were two fingerprint cards. Then Pam Bondi, who was a spokesperson for Ober and all of this, they, she called the disappearance of most of the evidence very unusual. But she said without the physical evidence that we didn't have much. There's a lot said sort of at the end of this article that the, the evidence ends up getting destroyed because there was potentially DNA in it. Now, this is what I'm going to say about that. I think Mike Shea is... In, 80 now. I don't know that for sure. 23 plus 59 is 82. Okay, so Mike Shea, is, he's 82 now. He mentions in this 2001 article that the carpet was stained with semen and that it could be DNA tested in 2001. So no matter how you like shake all of this out, at the end of it, they everybody plays past the buck on this evidence. And I think that's what keeps... <laughs> this has been a very long way to answer your question. I think that's what keeps Brown from ever getting some kind of compensation for this after he's set free is that the evidence can't be tested to prove he didn't do it. And there was always this sort of specter over him that he did do it. And I have to say for anybody who like knows anything about this case, it does not go well for Joseph Brown. I guess we should talk about that. Huh? Yeah. Joseph Brown makes his way up to North Carolina and he gets married again in 1988. When he gets married, he is known as Shibaka Wakalimi, which is his Swahili name. He marries a woman named Mamie Caldwell. And Mamie Caldwell had been born and raised in South Carolina. She moved to Fort Washington. She had worked for the Department of Labor there. She had three children from a previous marriage when she ends up married to, uh, to Shibaka. The couple seemed to be doing well. They moved to Charlotte, North Carolina. She had retired in 2010. She was 71 years old, and she was looking forward to another phase in her life. 
On September 13th of 2012, local authorities went to the apartment shared by Mimi and Shabaka to perform a welfare check. Mamie's family had not heard from Mamie for a while, and they were starting to get worried. There were no signs of forced entry, and most of the house seemed to be in order. However, there were signs of a struggle inside the bedroom. There was some blood on the carpet, and there was a broken perfume bottle. In the bathroom, they found Mamie. She was covered with a blanket. She had multiple stab wounds, and she had been strangled. Shabaka was nowhere to be seen at the time. There was surveillance footage that indicated Mamie's car had been leaving around 6.45 a.m. Uh, a neighbor reported hearing an argument around 2.30 a.m. on September 13th. The authorities dug deeper into Shabaka's past, and they discovered that he was Joseph Brown, and that he had been on death row for 14 years, and that he had originally been convicted of early Barksdale's rape and murder but that it was based on false testimony from his co-defendants. After his, his release and changing his name and becoming a motivational speaker, he had worked some odd jobs as a truck driver and as a cook at a homeless shelter, among other things. But the local authorities in Charlotte learned that the couple was struggling financial because Shibaka did not pay taxes on the money he made from speaking engagements. Their house in Fort Washington had been foreclosed on, and that's what preceded them moving to Charlotte because it was much cheaper to live in North Carolina than Maryland. In 2003 and 2005, Mamie Caldwell had filed domestic violence complaints against Shabaka. Everything that they could dig up seemed like the marriage was going downhill. Mamie's car was then located at a motel in Charleston, South Carolina, and that's where they found Shabaka and arrested him. Authorities believe that the couple had a heated argument and that it turned violent with Shabaka stabbing and strangling Mamie. He then moved the body from the bedroom into the bathroom. He tried cleaning up and then he just ended up driving away. As of September, 2013, uh, Shabaka pled guilty to second degree murder and he was uh, apologetic in court. He said, I cannot ever replace the loss I've taken from you to her family. He said, I love your mom for 25 years. She was my life. I only ask that today the healing process begin with all of you. Shabaka in 2013 was sentenced to 15 to 18 years behind bars. And his early project, earliest projected release date was 2027. So that one does not have quite the happy ending that I thought it would. What do you think of all that? Is he still alive? Do you think he's in there under Shabaka or... Brown. His name is still Joseph Brown. So Joseph Brown is alive. He's 73 years old. He is in, uh, currently he's in Randolph Correctional Center in North Carolina. He had been in Pamlico. I know that some different stuff has gone on with him in terms of he's had some different TV shows about him. His current projected release date is September of 2027. And that's because he pled guilty, right? So while that seems pretty damning, right? Yeah. That at the end of it all, he killed um, his wife. And they had been married for 20 years at that point in time. I feel like these are two really different uh, types of murders, ultimately. Absolutely, yeah. Or, or they're two very similar types of murders and there's no way that uh joseph brown could have killed earlene barksdale 
in that similar way that he killed his own wife. In, twel- in 2012, when uh, Brown killed Mamie Caldwell Brown, it's essentially a domestic issue. Okay. Right. It, it's a it's a couple who um, he he's clearly remorseful, um, and he snapped. Probably they got into an argument. Right. Uh, he lost his temper and he killed her. Okay. So if the same type of thing happened in Erlene Barksdale's murder, then, I mean, Joseph Brown didn't have any relationship with her at all, so he couldn't have had that type. I got you. It couldn't be that type of murder, right? I got you, yeah. Okay, now, you know, from the defense side of things, if you listen to, like, what we were kind of referencing um, with the creative loafer, uh, you know, they make a pretty good case uh, as far as, like, here's some possible blame. The thing that sticks with me is Joseph Brown essentially confesses to the robbery he committed, right? Right. Which was the robbery at, um, was it the Holiday Inn? Yeah, it was a Holiday Inn by the airport, yeah. Okay, so he, com- he like, says, he goes to the police and he's like, I did this, you know, whatever. And then I think that I don't know who did it, but I think it's possible that an opportunity was seized here. Um, because having known how the story uh, has panned out, it seems unlikely that he would have gone to the police and um, turned himself in for a robbery knowing he had also committed that murder. Correct. That's sort of where I land with this. And to me, um, I I don't know what uh, the motivation was. I think, but for him turning himself in... Like, none of this ever would have happened as far as Brown being involved in Erlene Barksdale's murder, right? Yeah. Um, Now, um, an important aspect that's brought up uh, in the, you know, 90% fictional version because of, you know, reasons, um, uh Erlene's oldest son questions the fact that she was sexually assaulted. Um, He indicates that in his adult opinion, the results tend to show that, you know, she had had sex with someone, but not necessarily that there was an assault. Right. Oh, and he uh, mentioned again, this is unsworn. Uh, it's not testimony at all, but it's kind of his side of the story. Now, this um, kid would have been in high school. uh, I believe he was a high school senior when his mom was killed, right? And so now, much later, he's an adult, and this is in 2001, and he's, you know, taking it all in, uh, so to speak. But he thinks, he has thought all along that if they could have tested some of the evidence that whomever she had had sex with, that's who killed her. And uh, that it was very, he he just didn't 
by the sexual assault part. Now, if you believe that, that completely discounts um, the initial link that was made between Brown and the robbery to begin with, right? Because they were saying uh, the Holiday Inn robbery also included like an attempted assault. Right, a groping. Okay, or something, right. And then something else happened, and I don't think it actually occurred, but then they made this connection with the fact that Erlene Barksdale had been sexually assaulted and killed, right? Yeah. And so it almost makes it all go away. Again, not sworn testimony, but it's telling that that is what was said. The other thing that it makes me wonder, so they had a policy, um, according, again, to the unsworn information, um, Brown was the, his conviction was reversed by the 11th Circuit on October 17th, 1986, and he was finally released on March 5th of 1987, Right. Uh, that and at that time, the court ordered a new trial, and uh, all charges ended up being dropped by the prosecution. And so they didn't uh, move to refile the charges and try him again. Right. Right. According to the information that is sort of you know let out in dribs and drabs, uh, actually no, it's cited as being Edna Fitzpatrick, who was an administrator. An AIC administrator said state law requires court clerks to retain unclaimed evidence for a maximum of 60 days after the case is thought to be resolved. And that's how the clerk, you know, says, because of that, we turned over Barksdale evidence to a sheriff's employee in 1988. Yeah. Okay. Well, the issue is that Brown was let out in March 5th of 1987 and with his uh with his conviction being overturned and him being released from prison I don't see how the court clerk considered uh the case resolved I I don't either I don't know what happened there I do think there's some kind of weird thing going on with the evidence I don't necessarily think it's exactly what the defense thinks it could be a clerical error or it could just simply be misfiled I would believe misfiled over some kind of direct corruption. I, I, this whole direct corruption thing, like, I think there's problems here in this area. Well, just to be clear, like, according to the court clerk, because uh, the unclaimed trial evidence was retained for 60 days after the case was thought to be resolved, they then gave it to a sheriff's employee in 1988, right? So they right. didn't even destroy it. My question is, like, why did they think the case was resolved? So the overturning of the conviction didn't trickle its way back down to the point where the the um, administrator or the clerk of court or whomever was doing this realized, like, oh, this case isn't actually resolved because it's it wasn't at that point. Because once the upper court had overturned the conviction, it's still an open case, right? Until the prosecutors drop the charges, I guess. But that's just one, that's just the case against that defendant being dropped. The murder would still be open. That gets really complicated. Anyway, that DNA could have completely exonerated Joseph Brown. It's unfortunate that he ends up killing his uh, wife, 
Yeah. Uh, Joseph Brown ends up killing his wife in 2012. Um, again, completely different type of murder than it would have been if he was guilty of killing Earlene. I don't know. I feel like every single th- this is such a convoluted story, right? Yeah, it, it, it is. It's it's and it's terrible because you can't get past one issue to deal with the other issue. Depending on which issue you start with. Right. And just kind of, you know, right on the surface, um, it's always more likely that a significant other has killed someone, right? As opposed to um, a stranger. Yeah. And it's, I've said it for a long time now, whenever you get going with, you know, you're seeing like three guys committing a murder, right? Yeah. Um, more than likely that didn't happen. Yeah, you look in the wrong direction. That's what you've said that for a long, long time. I have because it's like you get the one guy and you're like, well, he couldn't have done this by himself. Like, so who was your friend that was involved? And then you get another guy and they're like, okay, we're almost there. One more guy, right? Yeah. And so now in this particular case, he did confess. I mean, I feel like if he could have known how that was going to happen, uh, as far as him saying, yes, I robbed the hotel and, you know, taking his licks for that. The other thing was he ended up pleading guilty to his wife's murder as well. So like, why would it be this like one thing that he doesn't admit to? It doesn't really make sense, right? But to me, that the he wasn't really her husband, but um, Barksdale. I mean, he could possibly have sway over uh, just from his own position in the judicial system. There, I mean, it ends up kind of backfiring on him. I don't believe for a second that anybody let Joseph Brown out of jail just to irritate him. No, they didn't. Like he was saying that that was completely ridiculous. And it was almost like he was a little too biased. I I don't know what the right word would be, but it was like, he was almost a little too. um, He was pushing a little too hard. Yeah. And he was a little too rude about it all. Well, he was very rude, and he, I can imagine this type of guy. I don't know about in the 70s, but, like, this is the kind of guy who, like, I mean, he's got a wife and a mistress. I know. Right? And another mistress. And and then a girlfriend. <laughs> because, yeah. I mean, with the wife and the mistress, like, he's actually, like, two households. Okay? It's crazy to me. But this is the kind of guy who doesn't get told no. He has never done anything wrong. And I don't know what – there must have been pressure coming from somewhere if he were to be responsible for her murder. But, you know, we, we don't ever get there because conveniently another guy happened to rob a hotel that day, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's like the windfall of a lifetime in the event that, you know, he was responsible for it. But anyway – um. I think that in all of the drama that surrounds all of it, including like where you've got Joseph Brown, like, you know, 15 hours away from death or whatever it was. um, And then, you know, completely exonerated. 
I, I have in my mind several different cases where people have gone from death row to out, right? Yeah. And uh, sometimes sentences are commuted to life, and that's different. But when you have somebody going from death row to being out of uh, out of jail, period, and not and charges aren't refiled, I feel like those are the cases that deserve extra scrutiny. And like something had to have gone really, really wrong here. Yeah. And. To me, because, you know, the Court of Appeals has the power to remand the case for resentencing, right? Yes. Um, without uh, a new trial. Yes. And so that's an important distinction. And I hate it, but I have to say that uh, I don't think actual innocence is a requirement when there's such blatant prosecutorial misconduct right uh that shows up like that it you know it's pretty there's a lot of evidence indicating that more than likely this misconduct actually happened right and uh the court sees it but i also think i think it's possible joseph brown could have um gotten his record expunged and maybe that just wasn't something he was familiar with and he was so tired of dealing with uh because you know put yourself in his shoes for a second let's say we know for sure he didn't kill early in barksdale but he did commit a robbery he's like i can't live with myself for committing this robbery he turns himself in and then he's suddenly on death row and about to be put to death and so when he finally gets out he doesn't want to deal with anything else no he definitely does not and so that could be why, like, he's never, his name's never fully exonerated and he's not, and it's not expunged from his record. And he changes his name, right? At least in, in theory. We don't know if he legally changed it, but he, did he not. started going, he started going by a different name, right? Yeah. And so he was uncovering a new leaf. And I can see where that would be a very traumatic thing to have, you know, participated in a robbery and end up almost put to death for a murder if you didn't commit it. Yeah. Well, I, I hate it for the guy. Um, I've seen a couple of these cases where somebody comes off death row for one murder and ends up involved in another murder. Um, and these are, like you said, these are completely different types of crimes. I hate it for him, but it, you know, it, it, it's a, it's a terrible way to be. And unfortunately, uh, Joseph will not be home for the holidays. No, he won't, but he was home at least the time in between. Yeah, he was. We are sponsored by LabratiCreations.com. You can check them out at LabratiCreations.com, and you can still use the code CRIMEXS for a fun pop pet portrait of your own pet. You can also reach us on Twitter, Instagram, at TrueCrimeXS. Or you can give us a call if you know anything about any of the cases that we're talking about at 252-365-5593. You can also reach us at Gmail at truecrimexs at gmail.com. And you can check out our website at www.truecrimexs.com. We'll see you next time.
All right, so I'm going to tell you guys a, a few things about some of the folks who are helping sponsor our show. Now, Labrati Creations sponsors our show, and you can always use the, the Crime XS code there. Um, you can also just message them uh, at uh, Labrati Creations, and they will generally do something for the people who come from True Crime XS. They were our very first sponsor. They've done a lot for the show. And that code is CRIMEXS at LabratiCreations.com. The first new advertisers that we have, and I've, I've selected all of these guys. I've selected all of these advertisers. So the very first one is Cure. Now, I'm going to tell you guys about this, uh, about Cure as being one of our sponsors. If you're an athlete, you know that proper hydration is key to peak performance, but plain water can be boring and sports drinks can be filled with artificial ingredients and added sugars. That's why we love Cure. It's a clean and effective way to stay hydrated and perform at your best. I use it late in the day when I switch out of caffeine mode, specifically when I hit the pool or I go play tennis with my wife. I use Cure to help me stay hydrated it helps me recover after a long day. Now, you guys may not know this, but I build things. Right now, I've been building several structures on our property out here. Among those is a new podcast studio space for myself. I do a lot of that work at night and into the wee hours. And I always have some cure with me to go into my aluminum water bottle. Hydration is not just about filling up my aluminum bottle with water. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and rehydrate quickly. Whether I'm building things or putting the podcast together or chasing these dogs that you sometimes hear in my studio up and down the trails to get them worn out, Cure Hydration is the way that I choose to go. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution or an ORS that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and to rehydrate quickly. The formula is made with all natural ingredients like coconut water powder and pink Himalayan salt. It's free from artificial flavors, from sweeteners and preservatives. Cure Hydration is vegan, gluten-free and non-GMO, making it a great option for anyone with dietary restrictions or preferences. The packets are convenient and easy to use. You just mix them with your water and you drink. They're perfect for on the go. They're perfect for travel. And anytime you need a quick and effective hydration boost, ready to combat dehydration, then you try Cure today and feel the difference for yourself. You can use code TRUECRIMEXS for 20% off your order. That's T-R-U-E-C-R-I-M-E-X-S. I have a link that I'm putting in the most recent episode show notes, and True Crime Excess will get you 20% off. Our second sponsor for the show today is Laird. Now, Laird has a list of things that they want me to tell you about. They have better ingredients with amazing taste and functional benefits. They have a superfood creamer crafted from the highest quality, all-natural, real food ingredients. All Laird products are sustainably sourced and thoroughly tested to ensure that you're incorporating the cleanest, finest fuel into your routine. They have all-natural, whole food ingredients. And they contain naturally occurring MCTs made from coconut oil. 
There's no artificial flavors, there's no colors or additives, and there's no sugar from highly refined corn syrup. They want me to talk about my love of coffee, but the truth is, I don't do much with coffee. But let me tell you someone who does. My wife has to have a cup of coffee every day. Now, I've fallen off recently, but one of the big things that I've done since the beginning of our relationship is she used to go and get a Starbucks every morning. I have substituted that out by always trying to make her coffee. It's not going to be every single day of time from when I met her, but for the most part, almost every day, I make her coffee. I put her creamers together and I make sure that she has a good way to start her day. So with Laird, he started experimenting with his morning ritual almost two decades ago. He found that when he started adding fats to his morning cup, like coconut oil, he had amazing energy throughout the rest of his day. He gradually perfected this recipe for an epic cup of fuel, and he began sharing it with his friends in the surf community. I'm an ocean guy, so I saw this item and I was like, okay, we're going to try this one out. Are you ready to feel more energized, more focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. And you can use our promo code at checkout to save 15% off your purchase today. Our offer code for this for Laird is going to be TrueCrimeXS. Pretty much everywhere except for Labrador Creations, if you use TrueCrimeXS, that will get you, uh, at Laird will get you 15% off. At some of the other places, I'll give you 20% off. Uh, I'm going to tell you about two more uh, sponsors today. So the first one is, uh, the third one is Liquid IV. So let's talk about the real reasons that you need to hydrate. Late night TV binging, back-to-back Zoom meetings, going on a walk with your friends. Everyday hydration is not just for high-energy athletic endeavors. Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. It's now available in sugar-free. This is years in the making, but Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free uses a proprietary zero-sugar hydration solution with no artificial sweeteners. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, but it's also got eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness. Liquid IV hydrates two times faster than water alone. Keep your daily routine exciting with three new flavors. They've got white peach, green grape, and lemon lime. I love all of these flavors, but I think that my favorite is probably the green grape. Uh, White peach I use as a secondary flavor, and lemon lime I leave here for my my kids and my wife. Uh, Liquid IV believes that equitable access to clean and abundant water is the foundation of a healthier world. They also partner with leading organizations to fund and foster innovative solutions that help communities protect both their water and their futures. To date, Liquid IV has donated over 39 million servings in 50 plus countries around the world. You can get 20% off when you grab your Liquid IV hydration multiplier sugar-free or any other variant at liquidiv.com and use code TrueCrimeXS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code TrueCrimeXS at liquidiv.com. And the last sponsor I want to tell you about is Zencaster. 
We're part of Zencaster's Creative Network. We've been using Zencaster since about midway into our first season. Uh, Meg and I experimented with a lot of different ways to put the podcast together. And the truth is Zencaster was an, an integral ingredient to us being able to bring you this show. It's so easy. It's now super easy. You can record a podcast with Zencaster. You can log in using your browser and you start recording a high quality podcast right away. You can record studio quality sound and up to 4K video with your guest. You get to feel a sense of Zen knowing that Zencaster's multi-layered backups ensure you will always have your recordings in the highest quality, even if the connection is unstable. You sound your best. I mean, if you've ever worried about what you sound like, Zencaster's post-production process makes you sound buttery smooth. It automatically removes those ums and ahs in your recordings. It removes those awkward pauses and conversation too. You can set the right podcast loudness and levels while reducing background noise with a click of a button. That's how you don't hear my dogs every uh, second of every episode. Zencaster is all in one. If you've thought about podcasting before and realized that you need a lot of different tools and services, those days are now over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place and you can distribute to Spotify, Apple, and other ma major destinations. Just go to Zencaster.com pricing and use my code TrueCrimeXS and you're going to get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. You can also check out the other plans they have available. I want you to have the same easy experiences that I do for all my podcasting and content needs. So Zencaster.com slash pricing. The offer code is TrueCrimeXS. And it's time for you to share your story today. Uh, we are also adding New Era as a uh, sponsor for the show. New Era Cap is a headwear and apparel brand founded in 1920 in Buffalo, New York. Now, uh, I actually have some experience with New Era Caps. My dad and I have been through multiple iterations of baseball caps through the years. We collect different styles, different eras. And now my teenager has started his own cap collection and has several New Eras as the centerpieces. Our favorite teams may not be the same, but our outfits are all topped with the same new era ball caps. Uh, we love the quality and the ability to wear what the players are wearing. Not to mention new era is the leading headwear manufacturer with quality licensed products. You can support your favorite college or pro team in style from the official headwear provider for the MLB, NFL, and NBA. You can get a stylish accessory for your everyday ensemble and support True Crime XS. Just shop the official headwear and get 15% off when you go to neweracap.com. That's N-E-W-E-R-A-C-A-P.com slash True Crime Access. You can also use the code True Crime Access at checkout. That's it. That's all you have to do. And that's 15% off your order using the promo code True Crime Access.